The reading is taken in the book of Isaiah, chapter 34. Isaiah chapter 34, beginning at verse 1. Come near, ye nations, to hear, and hearken, ye peoples. Let the earth hear, and the fullness thereof, the world, and all things that come forth from it. For the Lord hath indignation against all the nations, and wrath against all their hosts. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. Their slain also shall be cast out, and the stench of their dead bodies shall come up, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood, and all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their host shall fade away, as the leaf fadeth from off the vine, and as a fading leaf from the fig tree. For my sword hath drunk its fill in heaven, Behold, it shall come down upon Edom, and upon the people of my curse, to judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. And then, uh, in the last part of that same chapter, which describes the terrible judgment and desolation of the world, particularly as symbolized in Edom, Verse 16, Seek ye out of the book of the Lord, and read, No one of these, that is, no one of these terrible judgments, shall be missing. None shall want her mate, for my mouth it has commanded, and his spirit it has gathered them, and he hath cast the lot for them, and his hand hath divided it unto them by line. They shall possess it forever, from generation to generation, shall they dwell therein. A reference to all the creatures that live in ruins and in desolate places. And now chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands, and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert, and the glowing sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where they lay, shall be grass with reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there. And away, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for the redeemed. The wayfaring men, yea, fools, shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up thereon. 
They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return, and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This evening we come to the question of the key to the book of Isaiah and something of its outline. I have just put uh, a little of the outline upon the board this evening. I haven't put the whole outline, just a little. Remember that we have already spent some time uh, of an introductory na nature, uh, and we have also looked at the authorship of the book of Isaiah, and we have also, if I remember rightly, the last time, spent an evening upon the background of Isaiah. Isaiah's life and ministry, the reigns through which he lived, the kind of days that he lived in, the uh, up and down political life of his day in the international scene. Now, we've got to leave all that this evening and come now to the uh, key to this book. What really is the key to the book of Isaiah? I must confess that when I first began to um, read the book of Isaiah with this in my mind, what, re what is the true key to this book, my heart really quite failed. Um, I suppose the book of Isaiah is a book that's known to me as to most of you better than many other parts of the Old Testament. Uh, it's certainly a book the Lord has used often to speak to one. But in spite of the fact that one may well know it better than other parts of the Word, it is amazing how we can read Scripture and never ask ourselves what is the true theme of this part of the Word of God. And as I ask myself, what is the key? What really is the theme? What is the key to the book of Isaiah? I must confess as I have said, my heart quite failed. It's, it's a book of such amazing scope. When you take a, a, a prophet like the prophet Hosea, or you take even a prophet like Ezekiel, and he's difficult enough, um, or others uh, that are much easier than even those two, uh, it's not so difficult to find the key uh, of, uh, uh, their, to, to their ministry, the theme of their ministry. But Isaiah... Uh, the scope of Isaiah is tremendous. Uh, if Isaiah had only confined himself uh, to one aspect of things, it would have been easier, but he has not done. And even the most superficial reading of the book of Isaiah, and may I say that no one has any excuse for not reading the book of Isaiah, it's not a difficult book to read at all. Um, it, it is, uh, uh, in my estimation, a very easy book. Uh, to read. Uh, it seems to me that uh, Isaiah has a tremendous scope. The scope of his ministry is vast, vast. And this marks him out from the other prophets immediately and, of course, gives us all our questions and gives us a somewhat difficult time at the beginning uh, to, to put our finger uh, upon the key. 
There are many keys that we could give to the book of Isaiah. For instance, if one of you, if I were to ask you what do you think is the key to the, to the prophecies of Isaiah, to his ministry, if someone said, I believe it is the sovereignty of the Lord, then I do not think, uh, except perhaps, perhaps for one or two uh, somewhat more ignorant people, uh, that you could be possibly um, uh, challenged. If you said that the key to the book of Isaiah is the sovereignty of the Lord, you could bring scripture after scripture after scripture through the prophecies of Isaiah to support your claim. But if someone else were to say that redemption is the key to the book of Isaiah, they also could bring, I think, more scriptures uh, to, their, to their support. And if someone else were to say that they think that the theme uh, of Isaiah was the remnant, everything depends upon the remnant, and indeed his ministry was not so much bound up with the majority as with the little minority, his whole ministry was, was toward them and toward their building up and their strengthening. And, of course, he sees their final vindication and uh, the, the realization of the Lord, uh, Lord's purpose through this little remnant. If you said it was the remnant, I think you would have a tremendous amount of scripture. You could point to a large number of references using the word a remnant. And so we could go on. Oh, there are so many things. You know, there are some people who would say that the key to this book is the holiness of the Lord. Holiness. Because he is described throughout from beginning to end a very large number of times as the Holy One of Israel. And so we could go on. And of course, it is made even more difficult because the book of Isaiah, as we have already seen, uh, is divided into two very clear um, compartments. Up to chapter uh, 39, um, all mostly agree that Isaiah is the author. But all the controversy has been over the last chapters, from chapter 40 to chapter 66. Who wrote those chapters? And as we have already pointed out, <clears throat> not only is there a difference um, uh, in subject, but there is a difference in many other ways as well. Uh, for, for instance, the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah deal with his own present-day generation. They were a message, messages, prophecies delivered to his own generation concerning them and the, so their surrounding situation and problems and their immediate future. Whereas from chapter 40 to chapter 66 deals with a generation that was at that time two, three, four centuries in the future. And the whole of those last chapters of Isaiah from 40 to 66 were not even given in a sense to his own generation. Undoubtedly they were uh, delivered, but they weren't. They, weren't, they had no real bearing, uh, practical bearing, upon the people of that generation because they were all to do with the exile and the coming back from the exile and what would happen after the return from captivity. So you can see that that immediately has brought the suggestion that there is not one key to the book of Isaiah, but two. One key to the first 39 chapters, because it has one subject, and one key to the last chapters from 40 onwards. However, I think that 
when we really read the uh, book of Isaiah through from beginning to end and we uh, begin to look a little more deeply into it, we discover that there is a key which unlocks the whole book. And it is interesting in the light of what we have already seen when we studied the authorship uh, of the book of Isaiah, that <clears throat> uh, there is a connecting theme which runs right through from beginning to end of Isaiah. Isaiah has a threefold major division. And um, from chapter 7 to chapter um, uh, 35, we have um, one section. From 36 to chapter 39, we have another division. And from chapter 40 to the end, we have another division. Now, it is interesting that the middle division is not so much prophecy at all. It doesn't actually contain prophecy, um, essentially, but is a historical record, a record of a certain part of Isaiah's life in the reign of King Hezekiah. And he, whoever actually finally put the book of Isaiah into its present form, it may well have been Isaiah himself after he'd written it, he may have uh, portioned out uh, the, these chapters as we now have them uh, he decided that um, the first division which was to his own generation uh, and to the, to the immediately succeeding one, ones uh, should uh, come first and then we have a historical interlude a kind of a little division which is the record of a certain amount of incidents uh, in the reign of King Hezekiah, in which Isaiah had a very large part to play. And it's very interesting that it is there, in that division, that you find that all his, much of his ministry of the preceding chapters finds its fulfillment in its first way. You remember we said that many prophecies had their fulfillment in two or three, at two or three different times in history. And many of his, of his prophecies found their fulfillment then. And then it goes on to speak of Babylon. Babylon being the country that in the end, which at that time was almost unheard of, would, would be the country which would take uh, Judah away into captivity. And so it links the two, the first and the third division of Isaiah are linked by the little historical division in the center. However, we will look a little bit more, perhaps it will make more sense when we actually look at it. The key, what is the key? To, to the whole of this book. The key, it seems to me, is the eternal purpose of God. Uh, all, of course, all the prophets, somehow or other, were seeking to bring people, the nation, back to the purpose of God. But Isaiah can, um, Isaiah's ministry, Isaiah's uh, prophecies can really only be described, can only be understood in the light of the eternal purpose of God. You see, Isaiah does not just attack injustice. He doesn't just attack immor immorality. He doesn't just attack uh, uh, superficiality in the service of the Lord, as so many of the other prophets. He doesn't just deal with backsliding and restoration. Isaiah, as it were, defines the whole scheme of God's plan. Uh, he, 
he more than any other sees his own generation as part of, an, of the unfolding purpose of God. And he sees to the heart of the principles which govern the purpose of God. God doesn't do things willy-nilly. God doesn't do things carelessly, nor, nor does he do things in your life willy-nilly or carelessly, as so many people think. They think they can get away with things. Oh, they're the apple of God's eye. They can do anything. They'll get away with it. Uh, it doesn't really matter. God's a God of love and all that kind of business. It doesn't happen. There are principles which govern all God's dealings with his own. And this is the great message of the prophecies of Isaiah. He gets right down to rock bottom. And he shows to us only too clearly that the Lord will never forsake his own. He will never forsake his own. He has a tremendous purpose over his own. But that does not mean to say that he will put up with anything. Sometimes he will deal with them severely. Sometimes he will chastise them. Sometimes he will put them into the severest trials. And sometimes he will bring real judgment upon them with one great object, to bring them out into a large place and to purge them and, as it were, purify them of all those additional things which are encumbrances and hindrances. There is no other prophetic book which is quite the same grand sweep as Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah takes in the whole great plan of God. When you take those last chapters from chapter 40 on to chapter 66, it's remarkable um, the way Isaiah sees right from John the Baptist. This is the farthest limit of his, of his prophecy. Of course, it had its fulfillment in other ways. But right through as he sees John the Baptist coming forward, sees the Lord Jesus coming out, he sees the cross and Calvary, he sees beyond the Calvary to the resurrection, he sees beyond the re resurrection to the ascension, and he sees beyond the ascension to the church, and then he sees the whole age of the church. And at the end, finally, he sees the city of God. And at the achieved, realized purpose of God at the very end. And his prophecy ends upon the note of, of terrible judgment upon the nations of the world. But the, the people of God, the church of God, in, in the place to which it, is, it had been destined. It had reached there, got there. Um, now, that is the scope of Isaiah's prophecy. And what I'm seeking to say is this, there's no other prophet who saw so much and uh, it saw it so in perspective. Uh, Zechariah, for instance, Haggai, other prophets, they saw something about the house of God or the church of God, but they saw it in a more, uh, shall we say, anal analytical way. They didn't see it in quite the same uh, background, with, the, with its background etched in. Well, that's Isaiah. It really is remarkable uh, when, you, when you get hold of this, that the, the key to the whole book of Isaiah from beginning to end is the eternal purpose of God. And that purpose, as it is found in every single generation down to the act or up, shall I say, to the, uh, to the uh, realization uh, uh, of the city of God, the coming of the city of God down from out of heaven, having the glory of God. He sees the purpose of God like that in every single generation, how it touches all and the principles uh, that govern it. What is the purpose of God according to Isaiah? 
What really is the purpose of God? If we had Isaiah here this evening and we said to him, Isaiah, we understand that the theme, the key to all your ministry was the eternal purpose of God. It was this that you continually brought before the people, before the nation. Ever since you saw the Lord high and lifted up his train filling the temple, you were, you were captured by, by the tremendous scheme and economy of the purpose of God. Your life was abandoned to the Lord from that day forward. Now, Isaiah, could you please tell us, what do you mean by the purpose of God? What did you see the purpose of God to be? And I believe he would have answered us in two ways. He would have said, it is two things. Two things that in reality are one thing. The first is the Messiah, and the second is his blood. And he would have said to us, this is the eternal purpose of God. That all things, everything, everything in heaven and on earth should be gathered up in the Messiah of God, the Christ of God. And that to him should be brought from every tribe and tongue and nation a redeemed and a ransomed people. He calls them Zion. Zion. In whom the Messiah of God shall dwell who shall be his everlasting dwelling place, his own precious bride. And so, you see, Isaiah is a great loss to describe. He calls her a bride in one place. He calls her a vine in another place. He calls her the Zion in another place. He calls her the holy hill of God in another place. Oh, he's got many, many ways of describing uh, this. But it all comes down to the same thing. He has many ways of describing the Lord Jesus. He calls him in one place um, the uh, stem of Jesse. In another place he calls him the wonderful counsel of the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father. In another place he calls him Emmanuel. In another place he calls him the bright and morning star. But you see, everywhere through the book of Isaiah, he has different ways of describing two main things that are, or shall I say, people, that are one. They are one person in reality. We could almost say, what is the eternal purpose of God? It is Christ corporate. Not just Christ personal, but Christ corporate. That is, um, not only the Lord Jesus as the Christ of God, God manifest in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, but uh, gathered into him and with him a people that will be his everlasting complement, never to be taken away, never to be divided from him, to be so fused into him and he into them so joined together that they, they become one entity in the end. Well, if we had Isaiah here this evening, I believe he could teach us quite a few things uh, that we, with all our New Testament and much else, uh, probably have not yet really and truly grasped. He would be able to tell us a tremendous amount about the purpose of God. But that's what he would have said it was. And he would have said the eternal purpose of God is that Christ, and his church, together as one, should become the heart of a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's what Isaiah said. He would have said to us, now listen to me, the most terrible judgment, oh, the most terrible judgment is awaiting this world. When at last the stroke of God falls upon it, 
Oh, it'll be worse than any any H-bomb, be worse than anything any any human being has ever, ever been able to conceive or understand. He, he describes it as, as just as just being rolled up like a scroll, as um, as uh, John describes it in the end, uh, the smoke going up, reaching up to the heavens. Uh, so terrible will its destruction be. But Isaiah would have said to you, the judgment of God is being held off. It's, it's waiting, it's gathering force, it's ga gathering impetus, momentum. It's like some dam, God's arm of grace, holding back a terrible flood that is going to absolutely crash down onto an unsuspecting race and wipe them out as thoroughly as ever the race was wiped out in the flood of Noah. It's going to come in the end and sweep the whole thing into oblivion. But Isaiah would have said that the arm of God's grace is holding back that terrific flood, waiting and waiting and waiting for the realization of his purpose till the last single member of Christ's body is called out. And then he will take his arm away and the whole thing will sweep down and sweep it out. It's a terrible note that Isaiah ends his prophecies on. He says that the city of God shall be up there Upon the holy hill of God and from every side of the earth they shall come up to the hill of God. But he said, you know, his last words are, they shall go out. The redeemed of the Lord shall go out and they shall look upon the desolation upon the earth and they shall look upon the carcasses of those that have borne the judgment of God. That's a terrible way to end uh, his uh, ministry. But that is the way that So if we were to ask him what is the purpose of God, we should, we should begin to understand a little bit of it. And so we see through the book of Isaiah the purpose of God in relation to a number of things. First of all, uh, in that first major division, we find, as I've put up here, the judgments of God in relation to the purpose of God. And let no one think that God is not a God of judgment, either upon his own or upon those who know him not. There's a vast difference in God's judgment upon his own and upon those who are not his. But Isaiah goes only too clearly to the root of everything uh, in this matter. And he shows us that, that the judgments in that first great section of his prophecies, he shows us the judgments of God in relation to his purpose. They have a great part to play in, in the realization of God's purpose. The judgments of God are necessary to the achievement of God's purpose. And then from chapter 36 to chapter 39, we have what we've called the historical uh, interlude or division. Uh, strange enough, only one or two incidents from Isaiah's long life. You know, he lived to be perhaps uh, 90 or so at least. Uh, and yet we have just one or two uh, incidents in the life of uh, Hezekiah when Sennacherib, uh, king of Assyria, came and surrounded Jerusalem and laid siege to it. We had that incident recorded and the illness of Hezekiah and how 15 years was given to him further uh, for his life and also the awful uh, um, ambassage from Babylon uh, that came to uh, uh, Jerusalem. Well, what does that 
What has the purpose of God got to do with those incidents? Why didn't, uh, may I ask, why didn't Isaiah record the cleansing of the temple, the opening of the doors, the restoring of the worship of the Lord, the great Passover of Hezekiah's reign, which scripture so joyfully and jubilantly proclaims? Why did Isaiah, uh, why pull that out? Isn't, hasn't that more to do with the purpose of God? Ha! Huh. No, the point is this, and this is the heart of prophetic ministry. Isaiah was going to the root of that which thwarts God in the realization of his purpose every time. And that not only on the broadest and greatest scale, but on right down to the individual scale. What is the thing that thwarts the Lord every time in his purpose? Compromise. The little thing often we don't call sin, which in reality is the most terrible sin of all. The thing we call compromise. Now compromise doesn't just mean to say that you, uh, you do things you shouldn't do. Compromise can be, it can be much more respectable and decent than that. It may just mean that you compromise on how far you go with the Lord. That's all. But it is a question of alliance. And what Isaiah tries to point out is one simple fact, that this world is governed by evil spirits. And we, by nature, have got the thing inside of us. These idols that we worship, they're not just idols. These things, as Paul says, are, 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 are great spiritual, intangible forces that bind men and women all their lives to them. And so you see in that historical sequence, why, why is this whole question of uh, Hezekiah's uh, defiance of Sennacherib brought out into relief? Why not all the other things? Because it goes to the heart of something. Isaiah's ministry toward Hezekiah being with one great aim. Hezekiah, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't go down to Egypt. And don't rely on Assyria. Rely alone upon the Lord. And Hezekiah tremblingly, broke off all his leagues and his alliances, and for the first time in many years he stood alone with the Lord, and the whole might of Assyria surrounded him. And what happened? The Lord delivered him. And Isaiah, this was the greatest vindication of Isaiah's ministry as far as he was concerned. It was the climax and crown of his life. After that, he, 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 uh, we don't hear so much more of Isaiah. He had a lot to say to us, of course. But as far as his own day was concerned, it had reached its crown, its climax. It was over. And uh, all that he had tried to, to get the people to see, that you can just imagine it, can't you? Just imagine it. From the last war, some prophet had come forward and said something along the same line, that England wasn't to rely upon this or the allies or anyone else. She was to break off all her alliances with the whole lot and she was to stand entirely on her own feet, relying wholly upon the Lord. Can you imagine what all the politicians would have said and the church would have said and all the other wise people would have said and the historians would have pointed out much as it's exactly what happened in the day of Isaiah. Everyone took up the cudgels against, against Isaiah. They said, you, you foolish man, you foolish man. Do you, do you think the Lord wants us to have such an impractical kind of religion? No. And so on. 
And so these, these historical chapters are the heart of the prophecies of Isaiah because they go to the root of the problem. They go to the root of the thing. That is alliance with things that are not of the Lord. Alliance. Being unequally yoked together, Paul puts it. Somehow or other uh, becoming involved with that which is not of the Lord. Uh, so, we see the purpose of God in that light. And then we see, lastly, in the last chapters, the purpose of God. And we see there the sovereign grace of God realizing it. And they are the most wonderful chapters, of course, from chapter 40 onwards. There's no longer any so much talk of judgment. It's all grace. Everywhere it's sovereign grace. The Lord coming out to save his own. The Lord laying down his own life for his own. The Lord gathering his own in just because he loves them in grace. The Lord forgiving them all their sin and iniquity. The Lord somehow doing something in them. And in spite of the fact of all their sinfulness and waywardness, keeping them, keeping them right through to the end. Those are the last chapters of the prophecy of Isaiah. And the purpose of God is seen there. If we think the purpose of God depends on our own energy, we've got another thing coming. If we think that we can keep within the purpose of God by our own energy, we have got to think again. It is the grace of God, so Isaiah says. It's the sovereign grace of God alone that can keep us and can save us and can continue to deliver us and can uh, present us in the end uh, perfect uh, before the Father. Well... That's the purpose of God is the key to the book of Isaiah. But there are one or two other things that we could just see in relation to the purpose of God as we find them in the book of Isaiah. One is uh, apparent everywhere. It is redemption. Uh, everywhere you look in the book of Isaiah, you will find redemption. The Lord reveals himself again and again as the Redeemer. The Redeemer. Or the Saviour. The Saviour. Everywhere he, he comes forward as the, the Redeemer, the Saviour. Or he calls himself, um, uh, he calls his own the Saved or the Redeemed. A term used again and again is the Redeemed of the Lord, the Ransomed of the Lord. Everywhere you look. Now, you remember the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon presented to us the purpose of God, even if there had been no need for the cross. If there had been no fall, no sin, no terrible story of human failing and evil, the Song of Solomon presents to us what would have happened anyway, God's great eternal object to wed us to himself. But uh, the book of Isaiah is from a different vantage point altogether. It's, it stands on the ground all the way through of redemption. Never does it refer as the Song of Solomon does, uh, to, to the other. It everywhere sees the basis of the realization of God's purpose to be redemption, and it refuses to see any other basis whatsoever. At the very beginning, the Lord says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. That's the beginning of the prophecies of Isaiah. It doesn't matter where you turn. It's... Uh, it's re redemption is the basis. It's not human works. It's not human energy. It is simply and only the redemption 
of God. Well, you, you, need, you and I, we need to see that more and more clearly. The cross is always seen throughout as the foundation of the purpose of God and the realization of his purpose. Everywhere it is the foundation um, of God's purpose. It doesn't matter where you turn. And so, too, you will not only find that redemption is the basis of the book of Isaiah, but you will also find that the sovereignty of God is the basis uh, of, of this book. Uh, it doesn't matter where you turn, you will find in the book of Isaiah that the sovereignty of God uh, is one of, of Isaiah's great themes. Uh, he, he says again, he again and again reminds us that he is the Holy One, thy maker, thy maker. Uh, thy creator. Um, he again and again speaks of the Lord as I, even I, am he. And he says, there is none else like unto me. There is none else. No one else beside me. Again and again, Isaiah's great vision of the Lord high and lifted up, so tremendous, so mighty, is, is the... Uh, gives the character to all his ministry everywhere. Uh, he uh, sees the Lord as, as holy sovereign. Um, it's most interesting when you really look into it, uh, this question of the sovereignty of God as far as the purpose of God goes. Isaiah had his own doctrine long before Paul ever came forward of the foreknowledge of God and the foreordination of God as far as Isaiah was concerned. Everything was in the hands of an almighty God with Isaiah, there was no small God, no God that couldn't do this or couldn't do that. As far as Isaiah was concerned, the Lord could do anything, anything. And uh, Isaiah said, the Lord's got a great purpose, and the Lord is absolutely um, uh, fulfilling and realizing that purpose step by step, right through from the beginning, and he's going to see it right through to the end. Not one single part of that purpose is going to fail. All rests not upon human, human beings, but all rests upon the sovereignty of God. And Isaiah is not the least bit distressed in one way about all the failure and the apostasy and the backsliding of the people of God. For all the way through, he sees through it to the return, to the restoration in God's sovereignty and to the wonderful fulfillment of God's purpose. There was no man who could be more depressed and in many ways more unhappy than the prophet Isaiah. His message was one even in the days of Hezekiah when there was a mighty revival from end to end of the land. His message was one of judgment. That even so it couldn't, it couldn't stop the coming judgment of the Lord. And yet, you see, he sees through it all to the end. His, he had a tremendous uh, uh, appreciation of the Lord as being absent. Absolutely sovereign. Um, I think that's something perhaps we all need to know more of, the Lord sovereignly working out his purpose because of his grace. Uh, whatever seems to us to be happening and going on around us, to know the Lord in his sovereignty 
having started something, able to carry it right through, step by step, phase by phase, even through periods of judgment uh, and devastation, able to carry it right through to its fulfillment completely and utterly, according to his own purpose and according to his own timing. And so, you see, here there's something very wonderful about Isaiah's prophecies. You see, he looks right down, he... He, he sees the coming of the Lord Jesus. It's all going to be on time, he says this. Uh, coming of John the Baptist first. The Lord Jesus. And Calvary and all the rest. He sees it all. There's not going to be anything. Nothing's going to stop it. And yet, what is his message? His message is all the way through. One of exile. Of terrible judgment. Not only to the nations around about, but to the people of God. And yet, beyond it all. He could, he could, as it were, humanly speaking, pin his whole faith upon a little straggling group that were going to come back, as he called the remnant. And through them and in them, the whole purpose of God was going to be achieved and accomplished. So, so much for the sovereignty of God. We, oh, what a tremendous part of the book of Isaiah could be taken up with just a study on the sovereignty of God in every single aspect. The eternal purpose of God under his own sovereignty in every single phase of its outworking and of its realization. And that is why Isaiah has this tremendous emphasis upon um, the necessity of being utterly dependent upon the Lord. Not leaning upon anything else or anyone else. Not getting involved in anything else. But of being wholly dependent upon the Lord. He, he, his attitude is the Lord is well able. He doesn't need Egypt. He doesn't need Assyria. He doesn't need Damascus. He doesn't need Israel. The Lord is well able to do it. Judah must depend upon the Lord in entirely and utterly. Otherwise, uh, they will only weep uh, a judgment to purify them of unholy alliances and uh, covenants. Uh, and that has a great message for us if we believe in the eternal purpose of God. Because, you see, this whole question of being abandoned to the Lord, of being dependent upon the Lord, is not just some little subsidiary aspect of ministry. It goes right to the root of everything, this whole question of compromise. Why do we so often compromise? Not only because we want to, but often on many things, because we feel that somehow or other we ought to lean on something or call in the help of something else instead of wholly depending uh, upon the Lord. Well, there we are. I say, Isaiah's, one of Isaiah's great distinctive themes is the remnant. It doesn't matter where you turn, it is the remnant. And uh, he sees the purpose of God, uh, though much judgment bound up with it, he sees it all perfectly realized in the end, in a, in a remnant that will return and will once again rebuild the land and in the end, through them, the, the Messiah will come. Well, there we are. There's such a lot that we could say about the book of, I, of Isaiah in that way. But the key to it, I haven't by any means exhausted everything. There's a tremendous amount more uh, in this book of Isaiah. But it, it is bounded by the purpose of God. And on the one side, the righteousness of God which will not allow anything to pass, will not overlook anything, will not bypass anything, the Holy One of Israel, 
watching everything, judging everything, whether it's in the nations round about or whether it is his own people, everything. The Lord is absolutely impartial. Let us get that absolutely clear. We are by nature, most of us, discriminating. But the Lord is not. He is absolutely impartial. And it doesn't matter who we are or what we are. Oh, the Lord has dealings with us. But you see, uh, on the one side we have the Holy One of Israel, but the other side we have the Redeemer. These two wonderful titles that Isaiah uses constantly. The Holy One and the Redeemer. Thy Redeemer. On the one hand, absolutely holy and righteous. On the other side, our redemption and our salvation. Well, there we are. He sees all that. What a wonderful ministry, really, was Isaiah. Well, now just let's spend these closing moments looking at the first part of the outline of the book. We ought to note that a lot of uh, the book of Isaiah is in poetic form. Um, that's rather interesting, isn't it? can't always imagine someone in being uh, inspired uh, spontaneously um, to... Uh, to prophesy in poetry. Uh, yet Isaiah, much of his prophecy uh, is in poetic form. And you, uh, I hope I now know a little bit about uh, poetic form, poetic Hebrew poetic forms. Well, there you are. A lot of his, his prophecy was in poetic forms. Now if we turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, we find, first of all, a general introduction. The first five chapters are a general introduction. The first two major divisions of the book of Isaiah stand together. That is from, shall we roughly say, from chapter 1 to 39. They do more or less hang together more. Uh, the last chapters from 40 to 66 stand more on their own. Now, we note one or two things in this general introduction. The first five chapters, 1 to 5. You will note that it consists of two prophecies. Chapter 1 is one prophecy, and uh, the next uh, prophecy is from chapter 2 to chapter the end of chapter 5. Um, now, Isaiah has put the first prophecy um, here, and then has added evidently some other prophecies together after it, and he has put these as a general introduction to this whole book, it is very interesting that later on, if you read right through from beginning to end of Isaiah, you will find in one place the Lord says to Isaiah, go and write these things in a book. Go and write these things in a book. Um, well, it may well be that Isaiah has put this uh, first prophecy at the very beginning and then extended it in the next uh, chapters from 2 to 5. It is very, very interesting that the first prophecy in chapter 1 consists uh, mainly uh, of, or shall we say, it consists of all the main characteristics of his ministry, from beginning to end. Um, they are contained in that first prophecy. From chapter 2 to chapter 5, you will find the whole thing expanded in detail. All those main characteristics are expanded. What are the main characteristics of... Um, uh, uh, Isaiah's ministry. What is this general introduction? If you look at it, you will find some very interesting things. You will find 
that he deals with seven main uh, points in his ministry. Apostasy, superficiality, uh, you'll find apostasy, for instance, uh, just uh, as an example, in verse 4 of chapter 1. Superficiality you will find in verse 11 of chapter 1. Hardness of heart, verse 5 of chapter 1. Judgment, verse 24 of chapter 1. Deliverance, chapter 8, verse 18 of chapter 1. Fulfillment of God's purpose in a remnant, 27th verse of chapter 1. And the final glory and final service. In chapter 2 from verse 1 to 4. Now that is, as it were, a general introduction to all his ministry. His whole ministry was to do with the apostasy or the backsliding of God's people. To do with their superficiality in devotion. Their superficiality in service. He says, these people come near to me and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Superficiality. He speaks again and again of pleading with this people, but they've hardened their hearts. They've rejected my counsel. They've turned away from me. He speaks, you see, of deliverance. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. He, he pleads with them to wash themselves and cleanse them from their evil ways. Uh, uh, and, uh, and so we could go on. These are the main characteristics of uh, Isaiah's ministry. And it's interesting that they're all in, the, in this introduction. From chapter 2 right through to chapter 5, all those characteristics are expanded uh, more definitely. And there are some wonderful uh, descriptions in, in those chapters. You want to read them. He, and he, very wonderfully, he deals first with their restoration and final glory, and then with the judgments necessary to it. Now, that's the key to a lot of the ministry of Isaiah. First, he says to them, this is what the Lord is going to do. And he speaks of the millennial days when all the wealth of the kingdoms will come to Zion. Everyone will journey up to Zion. They will bring other people with them. Gentiles, he says, will be brought with them up to serve the Lord. He speaks of that wonderful day at the end. And then, suddenly, he plunges into judgment. All that the Lord has got to do, judgment, terrible judgment, which is necessary to the fulfillment of his purpose. And then you will see that chapter 6 is the call of Isaiah. Uh, if you have that general introduction in the first five chapters, chapter 6 is basic to all his ministry, obviously. Um, last time we had a study, you remember, we mentioned uh, the call of Isaiah and how what a tremendous influence it had upon his whole ministry. And then, um, from then, you go on to the first great division of the book of Isaiah, the judgments of God in relation to his purpose, from chapter 7 to chapter 35. Now, there's a tremendous amount we could say about these chapters. But if you look at chapter 7 you will find quite a number of things. What is the background first? Well, the first thing we find from chapter 7 to chapter 12 is the judgment upon God's people leading to restoration. From chapter 7 to chapter 12, he deals with the judgment of God upon Jerusalem and Judah. And he shows that it, it, all God's dealings with them 
are leading to one thing, restoration. Now, it's interesting that these prophecies were given in the reign of Ahaz, who was one of the most evil kings of Judah. You remember the terrible things that he did. He, he offered his own son as a burnt offering. He pioneered nature worship with all its evil and immoral associations. He changed the whole, the whole uh, standard of the country from uh, at least outwardly fearing God to not even outwardly giving honor uh, to the Lord whatsoever. And um, he made, you remember, Israel, the people of God, a vassal of Assyria. He made them actually um, a servant to Assyria. Now, it was in this uh, reign that we had these prophecies from 7 to 12. And they all deal with the judgment of God upon Syria and upon uh, Is Israel. Israel and Syria had joined together in a league, an alliance. And um, they were attacking uh, Jerusalem. Uh, these two, the northern kingdom, Israel, and Syria together, were trying to uh, band together to force Judah uh, out of the picture. And um, Isaiah brings the judgments of God upon all three. He says the Lord's going to judge Syria, Damascus. He's going to judge Israel. And he's going to judge Judah. But Syria is going to vanish forever. Israel will go into captivity, never to return. Judah will be judged severely. But alone of the three, a remnant shall come out of Judah and shall return. Such was Isaiah's ministry in the terrible days of Ahaz. And he speaks again and again in these chapters of restoration. Look at the wonderful words he says. Um, again and again, you look at chapter 7 and 3. He takes his son. He's called his son by the name, a remnant shall return. Shear Jeshul. A remnant shall return. Or 8 uh, and, and verse 10. Take counsel together, but it will come to naught. Speak a word, but it will come, uh, but it will not stand for God is with us. And so you could go on in all these chapters. Chapter 10, verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the arrogant uh, boasting of the king of Assyria. You see Isaiah's ministry. Judgment. Judgment upon the people of God, but only for a while. When he's finished his work, what he's wanting to do, why is all this judgment coming? To purify the people of God. Now, you know, the, the New Testament, whatever some people might say, talks a lot about the judgment of God. And it tells us clearly that all God's judgments on his own children have one object, and that is to restore them. To restore them. Judgments of God upon the other nations end in their, in their absolute desolation. But the judgments of God upon his own lead to restoration. I remember John Kennedy brought a message, uh, which was not an easy one to uh, receive. And the whole theme of his message was simply this. Judgment of God leading to grace. Every time God judges, he, it leads to grace when he judges his people. And, you know, when you look through these chapters, through to chapter 12, you will find again and again this 
um, picture. In, for instance, chapter 10, verse 20, listen to these words. In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean upon him that smote them. That's a reference to their being a vassal to Assyria. But will lean upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with, with righteousness. For the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will make a full end as decreed in the midst of the earth. And so you can go on. You see, uh, um, he, his ministry is simply along this line that though the judgment of God is going to come, there's going to be a remnant that are going to return. And then you will notice again that in these chapters from 7 to 12, you have many prophecies concerning Christ. These are the most wonderful prophecies concerning Christ. If you look, for instance, at um, chapter uh, 7 and uh, verse 14, you have, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. Then chapter 8. Verse 14, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. And then uh, again in chapter 9 from verse 2, the latter time he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now Galilee was the one that was going to be judged with Samaria. It was in the northern kingdom. It was going to go. And Isaiah says, all right, even Galilee is one day going to be Galilee of the nations. It's going to be Galilee of the nations. And then he goes on, the people that have walked in great darkness, that walked in darkness, have seen a great light. And this tremendous one, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, the, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and so on, his government, there shall be no end. What a, what a wonderful thing. Now what is it that Isaiah see? Come on, can anyone tell me, what is it that Isaiah has seen? What really has got hold of him? All his ministry is to do with judgment upon the people of God. Do you know what he's seen? He's seen the purpose of God. And therefore he's able to say confidently, a remnant's got to return. A remnant's got to return. I don't believe that suddenly there was a kind of ticker machine and out came something from the Lord that said a remnant's going to return. Isaiah saw it. Isaiah saw it. All this about a child. All this about the Son. All, about, all this about the Messiah. Then he thinks to himself, well, if judgment's going to come upon this nation, a remnant's got to return. It's got to return. For the purpose of the Lord in his sovereignty to be fulfilled. What confidence that was to Isaiah. He was able to tell them all, it's all right. He was able to say to an evil king like King Ahaz, don't you worry, Ahaz. You won't even ask the Lord for help. But that's all right, Ahaz. It's all right. You are of the line of David, and just because you are the line of David, you are not going to be destroyed. Because Ahaz had a son, and his son was Hezekiah. And a lot of Isaiah's prophecies had their fulfillment in Hezekiah, and then beyond Hezekiah, they had their fulfillment in Cyrus, and beyond Cyrus, they had their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Do you see? What a remarkable thing prophecy really is. Well, we could go on a lot more. You look at chapter 11. 
There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. His branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And right the way on to the end of chapter 12. Where it speaks of drawing water from the wells of salvation. The Lord himself being their salvation in that day. You see what Isaiah had seen? He saw only too clearly that the royal line, the city of God, the house of God, the nation, the land, and even Galilee, which was in the, in the northern kingdom, which was first to be judged and to go away, never to return, all had got to be reinstated, all had got to be restored if God's purpose was to be accomplished. Well, what are we taught here? We are taught simply this. God's judgments on his own are always in grace. When God judges you, you should thank the Lord. For it says, even about those that fall asleep, or are sick, or ill, it says, they are judged that they may not be judged with the world. In other words, it's all God's grace. He would be prepared to take away our very mortal life if we will not suffer terrible loss which is called second death harmed by second death the grace of God oh what a wonderful thing the grace of God I'm so glad the Lord's got a, uh, got it all in hand we don't understand we say oh no that's a good the Lord can't do that sure he can't be a God of love if he acts like that and all of us say, that's just the point the scripture says because he is a God of love he acts like that just because he loves you so much he acts like that he sent Israel into captivity because he loved them because he'd got to purify them. So you see, God's judgments are on his own are always in grace and with one object, towards restoration. And towards restoration with something they never had before. Sometimes when a person goes away from the Lord, we think it's the most terrible thing that's happened. But you know, it's not always the most terrible thing that's happened. Not always. Sometimes the Lord has to do it. In order to do something in that person, with the whole object of restoring them with something they never had before. Well, there we are. And then secondly, you will see the judgments of God upon the nations related to God's people. Now, very swiftly, let's look at these chapters, 13 to 27, a large number of chapters. You must read through them. I will just tell you very, very briefly what they are about. They're all to do with judgments of God upon nations. First the near nations, then to the ends of the earth. You go through the list of them. I'll just read to you. Babylon in chapter 13 and 14. Philistia in chapter 14, the last part of it. Moab chapter 15 and 16. Damascus chapter 17 at Syria. Ethiopia chapter 18. Egypt chapter 19 and 20. Babylon again chapter 21. Duma, which is Edom. Edom chapter 21, 11 and 12, verse 11 and 12. Arabia the last part of chapter 21, Jerusalem, chapter 22, Tyre, chapter 23, and then the whole earth from chapter 24 to the end. Now, I've marked this Bible, and I've marked every single reference in it, in those chapters, which shows that the judgments on all those nations are because of God's people. Even when God's people are being judged by the Lord, he's judging all those nations because of God's people. They are the touchstone of their judgment. And it is the, the, the attitude of each nation 
to God's people, the way they deal with them, the way they approach them, is whether they're going to be made, established, or broken and destroyed. And so you find a great nation like Babylon comes up with all its power, and because of what it does in the end, though used to God, though what it, because of what it does to God's people, it is destroyed off the face of the earth. And the most remarkable prophecies are in this book, which have been fulfilled. It says of Babylon, that its, its capital city will be destroyed and it will go under the sand, never to reappear again. And that's been absolutely fulfilled to the, to the word. It's under the sand to this very day. So you can go on all through these prophecies. And what do you find is the heart of them all? God's people. Everywhere it's God's people. What have you done to Zion? What was your attitude to Zion? You thought it was your power when you came up to Jerusalem and sought to destroy it, but you touched me. And that, that's the attitude of the Lord all the way through these remarkable chapters. It's most clearly seen, I think, in the last chapters from 24 to 27, where you get that wonderful chapter 25 and 26, which speaks of, you know, so well, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon thee. And in chapter 5, about the Lord being a covert, a stronghold, a fortress, and so on. But it's all about judgment. The whole thing's about judgment. The judgment of God upon the nations. Now, what do we discover here? We discover two or three things very simply. Listen to this, very simply. First, we discover that God's people are the focal point of world history. Some of us can't believe that, but it's true. The nations might have another record of their history. As far as they're concerned, uh, Israel's a funny little nation that hasn't got much to uh, much bearing on. But as far as the Lord is concerned, the whole of world history is comprehended by the people of God. They are the very focal point of the rise and fall of nations. Everything either rises or is destroyed by its attitude to the people of God. And the Lord is, as were, standing behind in the shadows, governing sovereignly every single thing. He raises up Babylon, and what does he say? I have raised thee up. I have raised thee up. He speaks of, of, of the Medes that are to come. I will bring the Medes and destroy Babylon. Exactly what happened centuries later. And so we can go on. See, the Lord behind all. Do you really, do you and I really believe the Lord is the God of the nations? Really the Lord of the nations, even though they, they reject him? He is. And today it is absolutely true. The church, the true living church of God, is the focal point of world history. All these great, these great ideologies, with all these great and terrible movements in the world, have one great object, really, and it's the people of God at the heart of it all. They are the focal point of it all. Communism might rise up to its height. Forgive me mentioning it. Some people might not like it. But it might rise up to its height. might go to a tremendous... It's all under the sovereignty of God. All under the... God has raised it up. Don't worry. Don't worry. We might all have to suffer at his hands one day. We do not know. But God has raised it up. Why worry? There will come a day when the thing will vanish and go under the waves, never to reappear again. But the thing that it has sought to destroy, the people of God, will remain forever. And so you have a little nation called the Jewish people. And you've got all these other great nations round about them, warlike and strong and mighty, civilizations that we have even today the monuments of. And we have nothing, really, nothing in the way of a monument 
yet the monument of the people of God is a living one. The Jews are still alive today. They're inside themselves, they are the monument of something. Even after the flesh, they're the monument. And the people of God are the same. Rome has tried to destroy them. What's happened to Rome? It's gone. What's happened to all oh, we've got a few ruins. Now, what what we instead? We have the people of God, they're still alive, still here. Still all uh, moving, the purpose of God is still going on. No, uh, you see, all this, all God's dealings with the nations have this at, at heart. And all the book of Revelation teaches only one thing, and that is that all God's judgments on the nations have his people as the focal point of it all. How they reacted to his people. Well, we have to leave it at that. And I might just say that the Lord not only judges them according to their attitude to his people, but he uses them. And do you know what he does? He uses them to judge his people. And so he raises up Babylon. He raises up Assyria to scourge his people. Then he raises up, he raises up what? He raises up Babylon to scourge his people. And so it goes on. He uses them. And then you have these solemn warnings here. I don't think there's anything I've said something about this. In chapter 28 to 33, are very solemn warnings, all about going down to Egypt. If you take your, your Bible from 28 to 33, I've again underlined it all. You will find again and again um, uh, these statements made by Isaiah. You have made a league, he says, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my counsel and so on. They, they're relying upon Egypt. They've gone down to Egypt. They want to make a covenant, he says, with death. That's how Isaiah describes it. Actually, it's a covenant with Egypt. And they say it's to save themselves. Because, you see, this chap these chapters here, from 28 to 33, are just to do with his own generation. These other prophecies have been, he's been looking away to exile, to restoration. But in these chapters, he's dealing with his own local situation. What was the local situation? Well, uh, Syria and Israel had banded together and were about to attack Judah. So what did Ahaz do? He said, we must ask Assyria to come to our help. Someone else was sort of saying, what about Egypt? Can't you call in Egypt? There was a party in the court, in the court circles, that said Egypt, they were pro-Egypt. There was another party that was pro-Assyria. There were others that wanted to, to make peace with Syria. Sorry. And Isaiah stood alone all the way through saying, none of it, none of it. You must be absolutely dependent upon the Lord. He outlines the terrible nature of alliance with these worldly powers. And he tries to, to plead with the people of God for utter dependence upon the Lord, utter dependence upon the Lord. Of course, these chapters found their fulfillment in uh, chapter 36 to 39 of Isaiah, when Assyria came up and tried to destroy Jerusalem. That's why they're so important, because these very prophecies were fulfilled a little later. Isaiah standing, pleading with them, don't go down into Egypt. Don't listen to your rulers in Jerusalem. Don't listen to them. They're trying to get you to go down to Egypt. You must rely upon the Lord. If you go down to Egypt, you will be destroyed. It's strange that later on Jeremiah said the very same thing. He believed almost lost his life if he did not lose his life in the end for saying it. Well, there you are. 
His confidence is founded upon God's word and God's purpose and God's Christ. Isn't that wonderful? You see, Isaiah said, don't go down to Egypt. Messiah's going to come. God himself will defend us. Not just because we're worthy to be defended, but because of his own purpose. He's got to. It's all right, you stand back on the Lord. Of course, a little later, his words were absolutely, literally fulfilled. They broke their alliance with Assyria. They refused to go down to Egypt. They stood absolutely alone. And the whole might of Assyria surrounded them. And they wouldn't budge. And you know what happened? They came out in the morning. You know the story. They came out in the morning, just according to Isaiah. They looked over the water, and the whole lot had gone. 185,000 had died, and only their bodies, their dead bodies, were strewn everywhere. The rest had fled. What had happened? To this day, we don't know what had happened. What plague hit them? Just, we're just told it was an angel of the Lord went through and smote 185,000, and they fled like the wind. And you know what else happened? As Sennacherib got back home, he was slain in his, in his own temple as he worshipped his own God by his two sons according to Isaiah's own word. What did Isaiah say? He said, the Lord will put a hook through your nose and will turn you back and lead you back the way that you came. How could anyone believe a word like that in today's life? Such... No, they said, we must, we must trust in Egypt. That's the political thing. That's the obvious thing to do. We must trust in, in Egypt. What does all that teach us? It teaches us simply this. Compromise, compromise, always brings judgment. Now, don't get that word judgment in a terrible light. It can, uh, often it can be, as the New Testament calls it, discipline, as in chastening. What does the Lord do when we, when, when we keep on getting alive with things we shouldn't get alive with? He puts us into the melting pot. puts us into the crucible. Somehow other those things are burned out. They're purged away. We come out without them. That's how the Lord does it. Sometimes if we won't yield in that way, then more drastic measures have to be taken. But compromise or alliance with things that are not of the Lord, even good things and nice things, those are the things that are, are the root of this. Isaiah says you can't do it. You must be separate under the Lord. If not, he says, uh, you want to go down to Egypt? The Lord's going to cure you of going down to Egypt. You wait. And it happened. They were surrounded. And then they couldn't get to Egypt. They couldn't call on Egypt. They were besieged, surrounded, blockaded. And for quite a time, the armies encamped there just to starve them out. And so that little city had, to do, had either to go out and give it surrender, or it had to trust the Lord. See what the Lord was doing? And you know how they stood up to it. Why, even the, the captains of, a, of the Syrian host spoke to them in the Jewish language and said to them, now don't you listen to Hezekiah. If you come out, you will give you all your lands you want and the money you want and everything. It'll all be wonderful with you. Don't you listen to him. He's just trying to deceive you. But not one person on those walls would listen. See what the Lord had done? It was a judgment, but it was a judgment to restoration. It was a judgment to do something. See, something happened to them then. They weren't talked about Egypt anymore. Then, when they got up the next morning, after a year or so of watching them uh, uh, encamped around, and they saw the whole lot of gone, and only dead bodies everywhere, 
Then they, they, it, Isaiah describes it in these chapters. He says, you, they reeled back. They were amazed. They said, what has the Lord done for us? And then they said this, who shall dwell in the midst of everlasting burnings? What, a, what kind of God is this, they said. Who can possibly dwell with a God like this? And then they said, the redeemed of the Lord. We are the redeemed of the Lord. See the kind of God we have got. He can destroy a whole, the whole army greatest power of the day destroy them like that and uh, within a month or two uh, destroy their king by, the, by his own son's hands and here we are we've been talking about Egypt and, and so on. well there you are so you see and of course the last uh, part just those last two chapters which are a fitting conclusion to this part of Isaiah chapter 34 deals with desolation 35, which we read this evening, deals with restoration. What a wonderful two chapters those are. 34, dealing with such desolation that, that only the owl and the jackal can find a home where once was populated fertile land. But the other, oh, the ravages of God's judgment have laid it bare and waste. But the grace of God was going to make the wilderness blossom like a rose and streams were going to break out everywhere and all was going to be restored and the redeemed and the ransomed of the Lord were going to return. Now that is the fitting conclusion to this section of judgments of God in relation to God's purpose. What do we say they are? They are summed up in chapter 34 and 35. The judgments of God upon the unsaved are to desolation, destruction. But the judgment of God upon his people is to restoration and increase. Well, may we learn those wonderful lessons from Isaiah. Not easy ones, I might say, to learn. Uh, they're, they're, to many folk, most of us, they will be distasteful in some ways. We like to think of the Lord not quite so righteous, not quite so firm, not quite so definite. But we've, mis we've mistaken the Lord if we see him in that way. The Lord deals with, as with a father, and he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. He doesn't deal with us uh, as with uh, those that are not his children, truly. He deals with us as those he wants to be trained up in the way that they should go, who are going to learn every lesson and learn it well. That's the kind of father we've got. Well, we should thank God for him and Isaiah's great ministry in the realization of the purpose of God is that these judgments have a very, because of our nature and because of what we are, a very necessary place in our training 